You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. A coroner's jury is hearing agonizing detail about the violent confrontation that left police officers injured and caused grievous injury to Miles Gray. Gray died after a fight with Vancouver police near the Vancouver-Burnaby border almost eight years ago. A warning, some of the details revealed at the inquest today are disturbing. Imadagahi reports. We were just speaking to him. He's challenging us to fight with us. He seems uh, very intoxicated or very high. In the final moments of Miles Gray's life, there were no cameras, no civilian witnesses. The only people present were police and Gray, whose screams can be heard through recordings of police radio transmissions. Charlie 6-3, hey, hey, hey. here, he's not in custody. Tempor, you have him, however, he's not in custody. It was extremely difficult to hear because the narrative of this whole eight years, almost eight years story is, Miles had superhuman strength and he did not feel pain. And yet, this audio recording that we heard yesterday, Miles is just screaming in agony in the background, and that was incredibly difficult to hear, actually traumatizing. My daughter just completely had a meltdown in the gallery. Gray died with severe injuries, suffered in a violent confrontation with up to seven police officers responding to a nuisance call on August 13, 2015. Vancouver Police Emergency Line. Hi there. There is a, um, we have a problem here. There is a guy uh, who uh, bothered my neighbor. She's a young, she's a middle-aged woman. 911 callers explained Gray was wandering around a southeast Vancouver neighborhood, shirtless, disoriented, and in clear mental distress or crisis. Despite the fact he was unarmed, police testified he was displaying threatening behavior with Constable Corey Folkstad testifying even though he had not physically harmed anyone, it was pretty reasonable to think he may be about to. Folkstad was one of the first three officers to engage Gray physically. It was a horrific situation, he told the jury, and I remember thinking this is the call, the one where we have to shoot someone. There was that level of fear and risk to me. None of the officers involved have ever been charged with a crime. In fact, Eric Bursnick, who also testified at the B.C. coroner's inquest on Wednesday, is an active VPD member and a use-of-force instructor. Imadagahi, Global News. Now, another high-profile public inquest could have a big impact on the way VPD officers are recruited and how their mental health is handled. The coroner's journey, or jury rather, investigating the suicide of Constable Nicole Chan made several recommendations. And as Catherine Urquhart reports, the VPD is going to implement all of them. More than four years ago, Constable Nicole Chan died by suicide. Her tragic death happened amid an investigation into her complaints about sexual harassment and inappropriate relationships with two senior officers. Now, the Vancouver Police Department says it will implement all recommendations from a coroner's inquest. In my view, the underlying problem is a toxic workplace and sexual harassment. None of the recommendations is really about that fact. The inquest heard Chan felt blackmailed into a sexual relationship with former Sergeant Dave Van Patten, a human resources officer, and her superior. She was just such a proud officer. She was proud of her work and she was proud of being able to basically speak out for the victims. Among the inquest recommendations being accepted by VPD, 
mandatory psychological clinical interviews during the recruitment process, mandatory respectful workplace training, human resource or peer support for employees with mental health issues, mandatory annual psychological check-ins for all police officers, and officers in human resources should receive specific training. Is that it's going to insist that its human resources officers be qualified human resources professionals. I mean, wow, whoever thought that you'd hire someone who isn't a qualified professional? Nicole's sister has released a statement saying, My family and I would like to acknowledge the Vancouver Police Department for their renewed commitment to the safety of their officers. It is with great honor that I acknowledge this achievement on behalf of my sister. It is because of Nicole's lived experience that this change will be made. We will always miss her, but we continue to find comfort in knowing that her legacy has gone beyond the call of duty by protecting future generations of officers. VPD estimates implementing the jury's recommendations will cost approximately $500,000. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Some more surprises at the trial of the man accused of killing a Burnaby teenager back in 2017. Proceedings are on hold yet again. Romina Dea reports. It's been two weeks since the murder trial of a Burnaby teen began. And in that time, the jury has been in the courtroom for roughly 30 minutes only. Justice Bernard standing down the jury once again today. We can't tell you why because of a publication ban. On April 5th, the opening day of trial, 14 jury members witnessed the accused, Abraham Ali, stand before them and enter a plea. I did not kill blank, said Ali's interpreter twice with conviction. The teen's identity is protected by a publication ban. Since the not guilty plea, there has been no evidence put before the jury, no witnesses. We still haven't heard Crown lay out a roadmap for its case. The judge apologized to the jury last week, essentially saying it's not like TV. Things have arisen that need to be dealt with. Ali stands accused of first-degree murder in the case, which dates back almost six years ago. The teen's body was discovered in Burnaby Central Park in July 2017. Hours before her death, she was last seen in a popular coffee shop near Metrotown. The motive for the killing, unknown. At the time, homicide investigators said it was random. IHIT identified more than 2,000 persons of interest. Then, after a controversial DNA technique, identified a group of people of Middle Eastern descent, Ali, a Burnaby resident and newcomer to Canada, was arrested in September 2018, 14 months after the teen's body was found. It's unclear what evidence led to the murder charge. The jury has been asked to return next Wednesday, April 26th. The trial is expected to last three months. Romina Dea, Global News. Transit police are releasing new video and pictures of a stabbing suspect hoping someone out there can identify him. The incident happened on board a SkyTrain just before 1 a.m. Saturday. The victim and his girlfriend boarded the train at Gateway Station, headed for Surrey Central, when he got into an argument with another man. That man pulled a sharp object and stabbed the 24-year-old victim in the abdomen. The victim was rushed to hospital but has since been released. Video footage shows the suspect at Stadium SkyTrain Station 
location on Saturday. If you can identify him, you are asked to contact transit police. Another boisterous question period in the legislature today, this time over drug decriminalization, with the opposition accusing the government of misstating its position. Keith Baldry joins us with more on this, Keith. Uh, it seems like the speaker was getting a little run over uh, today. <laughs> Yeah, the, Spencer, the speaker was Spencer Chandra Herbert. He's the deputy speaker. Doesn't command the same presence in the chair, clearly, as Rochelle Han does. So the opposition today, very upset with his handling of questioning period. I think letting ministers go on and on and not really uh, answering the questions. But also, as you mentioned, mischaracterizing the uh, opposition position on decriminalization. Yes, they voted for it at the committee stage, but they insist subject to safeguards and uh, guardrails established by the federal government. The opposition arguing those guardrails are not there. It's so it's unfair to accuse us of supporting a plan we clearly didn't support unless those guardrails were there. Bit of a testy exchange today between Shirley Bond, the veteran MLA for the opposition, who stood up, un departing from the script, to accuse the minister of misleading uh, the position of the opposition. Here's an exchange. And I will be perfectly clear. We thought and made it very clear that the letter of requirements before moving ahead was absolutely essential. We raised those concerns. Our support was contingent on the fact that this government did what the federal government told them they had to do. And frankly, and this minister knows full well those requirements have not been met. And, and frankly, Honourable Speaker, we know that having inherited uh, a, a system, well, a lack of a system, a fragmented collection of services when we formed government, the work that we've been doing since 2017 is to build that system, an integrated system of mental health and addictions care in our health care system. So it'll be interesting where, where this experiment with decriminalization goes in the weeks and months ahead. The new BC United caucus seems to be uh, departing a little bit from its previous uh, position, which was to support decriminalization because the guardrails they insisted on are not there. So I think this is another policy shift we're seeing under Kevin Falcon. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. Picket lines are now up outside federal government offices and other facilities across the country after a midnight strike deadline passed. 155,000 federal public service workers have walked off the job. And while both sides are still talking, it's already impacting Canadians. And Grace Key has more on the inconveniences from tax returns to travel. Grace. Yeah, we're just here at the CRA office here in Surrey. You can see the members behind me here. They're certainly getting uh, a boisterous bunch. They get a lot of support every once in a while from uh, drivers who are honking their horns. But yeah, of course, it's tax time. So if you are looking for help or expecting a return that could be delayed. 155,000 federal public service workers are on strike across Canada. 28 departments and agencies are affected. That includes services for immigration, passports and tax returns. We want a new car chat. Let's, let's get it going. 250 picket lines have been set up from coast to coast to coast. When do we want it? The union, Public Service Alliance of Canada, wants a 13.5% wage increase over three years. The federal government, 9%. Other sticking points involve remote work and better job security. People are frustrated. Uh, we've been at the bargaining table since 2021, uh, and unfortunately this is where we've ended up today, having to use a, a strike as our leverage. I really, you know, continue to urge both parties. I mean, the government is there. We've been there since last June, and I hope that the union will continue to be 
there as well to reach this agreement because ultimately it has an impact on Canadians. Just when passport wait times were improving, people at the Sinclair Centre in downtown Vancouver trying to renew passports realized it was essential service only for situations such as financial hardship or compassionate grounds. What are you oh. trying to get done? Uh, passport. How fast do you need it? Uh, a couple weeks, by three weeks, yeah. You didn't know they were on strike? No. No, I just need to renew my passport and kind of, kind of quickly, actually. So the federal government has also been asked about the possibility of back-to-work legislation, and they said the best solution would be at the bargaining table. Chris? Well, let's hope they find one. Thanks very much, Grace. A serious supply shortage in real estate. Buyers once again finding there are few choices and no bargains. The factors keeping inventory low and prices high. Next on the News Hour. Hey guys. Scary moments for Kamloops homeowners with a wildfire right at their doorstep. What caused it? Coming up on the News Hour. Plus, the new dress code at Vancouver's public pools. Why guidance is necessary later on the news hour. Right now, though, real estate in Metro Vancouver seems to be shifting once again right back into a seller's market. As Kamal Karmali reports, realtors say more buyers are jumping into the market and finding it's not nearly as friendly as they might have expected. The demand for housing is heating up in Metro Vancouver. We ended up with a super busy open house. We had 70 groups through uh, over three days. Realtor Christina Joe listed this Walnut Grove home for $1.45 million. It received 11 offers, 10 of them at or above asking price. Five of those were subject free. Definitely the last couple months um, there's been an uptick. A drastic shift from where Metro Vancouver's market was in December after the Bank of Canada increased its lending rate. So all those buyers, they took a step back and started watching from the sidelines. But last week it announced the key interest rate will sit steady at 4.5%. It's been that way since January. Before the announcement last week, we were seeing, you know, maybe six, seven offers. Um, not all of them condition-free, but since the announcement, I've heard stories of 20-plus offers on some properties and them selling as much as $250,000 over asking. In December of 2022, there were 371 sales of detached homes in Metro Vancouver. That nearly doubled in March. Average number of days a home would sit on the market was 49 in December. That fell to 39 days. And the benchmark price climbing nearly $40,000 in the four months. A lack of supply, also a big factor in homes getting above asking prices. A lot of sellers saw what their, what their homes were worth last spring, and they basically just still want that price. And if they can't get it, they're just not forced to sell. If the economy stays strong but inflation disappears and we get a reduction in interest rates close to where they've been in the last you know, 10 or 20 years, then I think we see a real jump in prices. Realtors say right now it's detached homes that are seeing the biggest surge in demand benefiting sellers, but expect townhomes and condos to follow suit in the coming weeks. Kamel Karamali, Global News.
Now, a graph from the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver shows what's happened to housing prices since 1977. Relatively modest increases until the early 2000s when prices, especially for detached homes, began to soar. Comparing prices to the rate of inflation also paints a stark picture. The average sale price of a Metro Vancouver home in 1977 was about $90,000. Well, the Bank of Canada's inflation calculator says $90,000 in 1977 equates to 426000 now. In reality, the current benchmark price of a home in Metro Vancouver is more than $1.1 million, although the Real Estate Board cautions that home prices don't always directly translate to the rate of inflation. Still, that just seems way out of whack, doesn't it? Coming up, Pitt Meadows pushes back. Is the bane of uh, Pitt Meadows. It's that back to the, uh, the punchline of Pitt Meadows. Why residents won't be getting the railway underpass they were really hoping for. Plus, three, two, one. The group, sure, it can succeed where so many others have failed with a new ferry service between Nanaimo and Vancouver. Traffic is in good shape over here both ways at the Botello Bridge and good news just cleared a crash southbound on McBride at 6th Avenue on the approach. Integra Tire is proud to serve the communities they are part of. Contact your local dealer today and get up to $100 in tire rebates. Integra Tire, truly local. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Botello Bridge. It's back to the drawing board for a project critical to solving a terrible traffic bottleneck in Metro Vancouver. As Jennifer Palmer reports, Pitt Meadows Council will not be forking out up to $50 million to help build a proposed underpass the port promised to pay for years ago. Just when it seemed things were moving full steam ahead... A long-awaited project is in danger of being derailed. It is like a pain in the neck. It is the bane of uh, Pitt Meadows. It's that back to the, uh, the punchline of Pitt Meadows. All those in favor? On Tuesday, City of Pitt Meadows councillors unanimously voted to not become a funding partner for the Harris Road underpass project. It will handcuff the municipality for investing in services and assets and infrastructure that are municipal responsibilities. Harris Road is the main artery in and out of the city of Pitt Meadows. The mayor says council fully supports the project, that it's a need, not a want. It is impacting the community as a whole. Uh, public safety is significant. We have our first responders that routinely get stuck at the crossing. So this becomes a potentially a life and death situation. The city's total annual operating budget is $50 million. The port is asking them to pay nearly that much, $49.6 million, to cover 25% of the cost of the underpass. Since the cost of the project has tripled from earlier estimates to $195 million. And the potential would be uh, approximately a 12% tax increase and $9,000 to an average single-family home. Commuters face average traffic delays of three and a half hours a day, but the board says that wait time could double by 2030. Those long lineups driving the need for the underpass to be built. Easy 20 minutes or more. Eh? It's like there's an emergency. Um, I'm kind of hooped. 
The port recognizes residents' concerns, but previously stated without the funds, the project would not go ahead. In a statement to Global News, the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority says it's disappointed by the City of Pitt Meadows Council's decision and is in the process of reviewing the future of the underpass and that their role is to facilitate partnerships and collaboration so this project can be realized. The city says this isn't the end of the line. They will continue to advocate for federal funding so the project stays on track. Jennifer Palma, Global News. Now the three busiest urban rail crossings in Metro Vancouver are all in the Maple Ridge Pit Meadows area. As Jennifer mentioned, Harris Road is the second busiest. It's also one of the riskiest in Canada. There are an average of 29 trains daily and more than 15,000 vehicles crossing there every day. Rounding out the top five is King Edward Street in Coquitlam and Glover Road in Langley. Well, people traveling between Vancouver and Nanaimo will soon have another option. A passenger-only service called Hello is scheduled to start late this summer. Yes, today the company broke ground on its new Nanaimo terminal, but as Kylie Stanton reports, similar services have tried and everyone has failed in the past. Three, two, one, give her. The countdown is on. <laughs> As of this summer, there will be a new way of traveling to and from Vancouver Island. The way we see the service is that it's an extension of the mass transit system uh, in BC. Um, you know, there's no frictionless connectivity between the island and the mainland, and that's what this is providing. Say hello to hello. Guests will depart from downtown locations at either the Nanaimo Port Authority or the Vancouver Harbour Flight Centre. There will be up to seven round-trip sailings per day at just 70 minutes apiece on two high-speed catamaran vessels with a capacity to carry 354 passengers. A three-tier reservation system will be in effect, but the big question, what will it cost? I would say 20 bucks each way. I don't know, 25 bucks one way it seems fair to me probably be willing to shell out even a bit more for the convenience actual retail price well we'll have to wait and see we're uh, just finalizing uh, uh, many of the service logistics and we'll be able to announce uh, uh, pricing and scheduling and a whole bunch of uh, other service details in June. While the service is being called innovative, it's far from the first attempt. Two different companies ran passenger hovercraft between Nanaimo and Vancouver. The Pacific hovercraft lasted just three months after it launched in 1969, and it was the same story for Sea Speed that ceased operations in 1984. The Royal Sea Link Express ran for just 11 months in 1992 and 93, and the Harbour Link service lasted only three years. Its final run in February of 2006. They had uh, placed the company in receivership. But there's a sense this new service won't find itself in the same boat. And I'm absolutely satisfied these folks have got it right. There is the financial backing to do it. There are two boats available in due course that will actually make it viable as opposed to one. And there is incredible public interest. And a fifth time's the charm. Hello won't be saying goodbye anytime soon. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Well, traveling can often be tough on our furry friends, especially on the open seas. But there's now a chance of relief coming to Canada Place. A new animal relief station is now in place at the Canada Place Cruise Terminal, an area for dogs to do their business. It even has a fire hydrant for some familiarity. The aim is to give travelers with reduced mobility or disabilities or those with service or companion dogs more accessibility and independence.
think it just opens the door for them to be able to take trips um, on cruise ships and be able to be included in our um, in our passenger processing and to feel like they can be um, comfortably travel with their um, with their guide dogs. Canada Place is the first cruise port to install these stations in the country, but the areas are quite common in airports. YVR installed its own stations back in 2016. Just ahead, a senior shocked to lose her home and all her belongings. How she fell through the cracks during a long hospital stay and how people are stepping up to help her. Plus, we don't have enough drugs in British Columbia or prescription drugs, nor would we expect to, to serve the U.S. market. After a surge in demand for diabetes and weight loss drug Ozempic, the province steps in to cool it off. Traffic is in pretty good shape over here at the Massey Tunnel tonight. Do keep in mind, though, you'll find minor delays for overnight maintenance and lane closures during the overnight hours. Today's Lotto 649 Gold Ball Jackpot is $10 million plus a classic $5 million jackpot. Two jackpots on every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. The homicide team has now identified the body found near the Golden Ears Bridge in Pitt Meadows on Monday. I hit says 31-year-old Randy Simodiak was homeless. He was reported missing, and when his body was located, police determined he was the victim of a homicide. Police investigators say they will remain in the area throughout the week, seeking witnesses and collecting evidence. Simodiak's body was found in a wooded area not far from the Meadowtown Mall. An encouraging update now on the Penticton pensioner who found herself homeless after a longer than expected stay in hospital. Since I got out of the hospital, it's just been hell. I don't know what to do anymore. 69-year-old Rhonda Elliott says she spent several weeks in hospital undergoing treatment for colon cancer. But when she was released, she was shocked to find all of her possessions in her apartment had been packed up and put into storage and her bank account closed. There has been an outpouring of support from people around the province who saw her story. She's been moved from a hostel into a motel now and the provincial government is even involved. I've actually reached out to BC Housing to ask them to make sure that an outreach worker reaches out to this individual to ensure that they have both temporary housing and then in the long term has, have more stable housing. Um, and certainly my heart goes out to them. I know it uh, must be very difficult. It's just been overwhelming. People that have stepped forward and the kindness of their heart that's just helping somebody that, that had a story to tell, you know, and, and that and it was, it was one hell of a story, but that, that how my life changed. And now all of a sudden it's changing for all this help that I'm getting from people. And just amazing. I'm just so stunned. I don't, I don't know what to say or do. Since Elliot has few close friends or relatives nearby, two Penticton City Councillors have stepped up to help resolve Rhonda's situation. A new manufacturing plant is opened in the Okanagan, building zero-emission trucks. The company, Hexagon Purus, serves customers around the world and works directly with companies like Toyota, Panasonic and Samsung. One of the features of its Kelowna zero-emissions plant will be an assembly line to build electric battery systems. Personally, it's over 20 years in the making to get to this point with this factory in Kelowna. So very exciting. This is one of five factories that we're opening around the globe this year. The energy transition and moving the world away from fossil fuels 
and, and uh, you know things that create carbon emission and towards the more renewable energy society. Yeah, this this is uh, this is two three decades at least before we uh, we make a meaningful dent in that. The new Kelowna plant will employ about 150 people. The Vancouver Park Board is looking at a motion that will establish what kind of swimsuits people can wear at city pools. According to a staff report, employees at city aquatic centers want a policy to assist them in cases where people wear swimwear that maybe isn't appropriate. The proposed policy says people must wear attire that maintains full and appropriate coverage of genitals, for instance. It also bans wearing items designed for sexual purposes, attire with long fabric and clothes that become heavy after absorbing water, such as jeans. People with poor control of their bladder or bowels will also be required to wear swim diapers. In Health Matters tonight, the provincial government is limiting the sale of Ozempic to make sure there's enough for British Columbians. The drug is used to treat diabetes, but it has gained popularity in the United States also as a weight loss medication. Richard Zussman has more on the new regulations. Ozempic's being used by the rich and famous, from Elon Musk to Chelsea Handler to Martin Short. But the drug is not being used to treat diabetes, rather weight loss, a trend forcing BC to respond. Today I'm, I'm here to announce that effective immediately the province is introducing a new regulation to ensure that diabetes patients in BC do not experience a shortage of the drug called uh, semaglutide, otherwise known as Ozempic. Ozempic is not currently approved in Canada to treat obesity, but the testimonials from celebrities have helped it gain popularity for weight loss. Now the province is banning online and mail order sales of the drug to people outside Canada. This after a doctor in Texas with a Nova Scotia license wrote 17,000 prescriptions over three months filed at two BC online pharmacies. This impact of the drug and its use by some to lose weight has caused a surge in demand for the drug, resulting in shortages in other jurisdictions. Demand is growing from south of the border due to cost. The injectable medication costs $300 for a month's supply in Canada, while in the U.S., the same dose costs upwards of $900 to $1,200 in U.S. dollars. We don't have enough drugs in British Columbia or prescription drugs, nor would we expect to, to serve the U.S. market. International visitors can still buy the drug in person, and there are no changes for Canadians needing to access the drug. The province hoping the federal government will also produce national regulations. As people are becoming a little bit more comfortable with online shopping, online purchasing, it's definitely a trend that we need to think about. And with expectations the Ozempic trend won't be the last, the province is preparing itself to add additional drugs to the restricted list if needed. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Still ahead, the end of an era at Calgary's airport. Now these girls play with them. When we're here, they like to twist them up and see the planes go around. Why the iconic kinetic sculpture at YYC's domestic terminal is about to fly away. That and much more still to come. The Future of Work series. Tune into Global News April 10th to 23rd for daily features focused on training for the workforce of the future. In partnership with Vancouver Island University. Learn more at viu.ca. RCMP are conducting a criminal investigation into a campfire that turned into a quick-moving grass fire threatening a number of homes in Kamloops. Hey, guys. 
The fire broke out in the brush below a hillside in the city's west end this afternoon. Gusty winds drove the fire just meters from several properties. Fortunately, quick work by crews helped push the fire back and no structures were damaged. It's now under control. Police say a camp was recently established in the area and they're looking to find out who is responsible. Glad they got that figured out. Okay. Allergies are bad, I know, because Sophie just sneezed 100 times in the commercial break. <laughs> and I'm looking for There's no tissue well, we do. We, I'll find you some. And the sun yeah. finally came out this afternoon, at least for a little bit, it seemed like. Christy? Yeah, that was a nice little break towards the end of the day. Sophie, I can totally uh, sympathize with you. My youngest has the worst allergies as well, and we're constantly dealing with it. I know you have a tough time. You know, just following up on that fire situation, I just wanted to quickly mention, you know, uh, here across the South Coast, we've been very wet. You can see that the fire danger rating is very low across our region as well as the sort of southeastern part of the province. But areas in the southern interior are at a moderate, getting up to a moderate level, southeastern areas as well. So it just gives you an idea. Despite the fact that we're in spring, it's early spring, uh, we're still dealing with a very dry scenario out there. And we've even had an update from the BC Wildfire Service that sort of indicates that, that they're seeing um, sort of unusual behavior, even for this fire behavior, even for this time of year. So be really careful when you're out there, that's for sure. All right, so let's have a look at what's going on. It was beautiful, as Chris said, towards the end of the day. A great start to the day, but we came out of it, and it meant that we warmed up. So still we're below seasonal, so at YVR we warmed up to 11 typical for this time of year is about 15 degrees. So we're not quite back to near near seasonal values, but at least with a bit of sunshine today, that was nice. We did have a lightning strike or two today, though, uh, in the Maple Ridge area, but overall things are going to settle down overnight. This is the next system that's going to drive on shore. So Vancouver Island, you'll start to see it in the morning hours. This is a snapshot at 9 a.m. Still dry for Metro Vancouver and lots of sunshine for the central interior, southern interior regions, but the rainfall will take over the south coast uh, towards the afternoon and particularly the evening hours. And I want you to highlight the fact that that means snow for the mountain passes up towards Whistler and east of Hope. So that's tomorrow evening and particularly tomorrow night you can expect snowfall. So there's your forecast for your Thursday, everyone. Uh, we are expecting uh, showers and rainfall across the central interior regions right into Whistler. Whistler will start off with snowfall and then transition to rainfall. For these areas, rain developing along the west coast in the morning. For inland regions, it's more towards the late afternoon, evening hours. We're definitely Definitely going to be wet though through the latter part of the day tomorrow. At least a nice high of 11 degrees. So that's not too bad considering um, uh, what we were dealing with, particularly yesterday. A bit of a dry patch for us on Friday, and then rain is expected on Saturday. What weekend in store for us? Look at this shot from Lorna. This is uh, Saturna Island looking out towards the clouds today. As the clearing occurred, the clouds were quite spectacular. We had many people sharing photos with us. So thank you to everyone. But Lorna, this one's really great. Keep them coming. Awesome. Thanks, Christy. All right, Squire. Yes. Is that the red couch? Just I'm at the red couch. Just had a sneezing fit. I might need to borrow your allergy meds. Just now? <clears throat> yeah, you weren't in the room. Okay, I can bring something down. Okay, thanks. If you'd like to take something. This is the farm. I have to warn you, though. The, yeah. the meds I take kind of make you a bit loopy. Well, even better. <laughs> okay. Let's just, you know what? Yeah. Let's live on the edge on the yeah. news hour. A loopy anchor makes for a fun show. Uh, okay, so we're going to go to Abbotsford. We're going to go down Abbey Road where Jay Janauer is because tonight is game one for the Abbotsford Canucks series against uh, Bakersfield, the Oilers farm team. So we'll talk about that. Wishing them luck in that one. Thanks very much, Squire. Also coming up, why Calgary's beloved airport attraction is flying off into the sunset.
Nothing better than playoff hockey. And look, Dr. <laughs> Barnes. You need some? Game prepared. You okay? I think I'm okay now. All right. Okay. I've got well, they're here now. if you need them. Thanks, Squire. You You're the All best. Right. Uh, okay, so the Abbotsford Canucks are starting their uh, three-game playoff series in about 15 minutes against Bakersfield, the Oilers' farm team. All three games of this series, game three, of course, if necessary, will be in Abbotsford, game two Friday, game three would be Sunday, both of those games, 7 o'clock. Now, Abby has had a great season. Christian Willannon, the other day, named the best defenseman in the American Hockey League. He'll be out there tonight, and Spencer Martin will start in goal a little while ago Jay caught up with the Abbey Canucks GM Ryan Johnson, and together they'll set up the series. It is a big night here at the Abbotsford Entertainment Sports Center. The Abbotsford Canucks playing their first ever home playoff game. Ryan Johnson, you're the general manager of this hockey team. We were here at practice yesterday interviewing the players afterwards. You had a conversation with them that resonated. You talked about April hockey players versus June hockey players. Share with our viewers what that conversation was about. Well, it was just nice to sit down with them as a group, talk about how much I appreciate them as people and players, and talk to them about, you know, that there's two types. Uh, people that are content being done in April, people that uh, expect to play deep into June. And the more we can take advantage of this opportunity, mention to them you only maybe get eight or nine times in your career to compete for something. I want them to understand the opportunity that they have uh, starting here tonight. You're coming off of a 40-win regular season. You're taking on Bakersfield. It was a short series in the playoffs last year. What has impressed you about your hockey team this year? Because we've talked in the past, very good mix of young and old. Yeah, we're, we're, we're a young team uh, when you look around the AHL. The, the one identity we have a group that's really made me proud and talked to them about yesterday is they fight. This is a team that's scrapping claws. We've had a lot of adversity throughout the year, and all they do is continue to fight. We're playing against a very experienced Bakersfield team, a very good hockey team, but I know our guys are going to fight and give them everything we can. Last question. We always talk about developing hockey players. Winning also develops. Having a taste of the playoffs has to bode well for them. Well, this, for me, for our organization, uh, we've intentionally wanted to get younger, and part of that development, you can do that in the regular season. When your youth are able to experience playoff hockey and play in the fire of that, I think that's that's worth months of development alone. So to have that group here, we didn't shoot down a ton of veteran players. I wanted these guys, the guys, to, I, I wanted to, them to uh, be rewarded for the work that they've done this year to get us to where we are. And I wanted to dance with the guys that brought us here. It's nice to be talking playoff hockey. It's the first playoff hockey that we've seen here in the Lower Mainland in almost a decade. The Canucks taking on the Bakersfield Condors tonight, 7 o'clock, just over 6,000 expected. Game two goes Friday night. Squire, back to you. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Well, I had to double take when I saw this today. The Canucks signed Elias Pettersson to a three-year contract, but it's not the Elias Pettersson you'd first think of. It's the other Elias Pettersson, the, the defenseman, who was drafted in the third round by the Canucks last year. The Canucks once had two guys named Greg Adams at the same time, so why not two Elias Petterssons? Uh, this year, this Patterson played in both uh, Sweden's Junior League and their main league, and he wasn't out of place when he moved up. 43 games as an 18-year-old, didn't score a lot, but was fairly good defensively, and the Canucks have options with him. They can bring him over here to see if he's ready for the American Hockey League next year, or they can keep him in Sweden for another season. I've got to show you this crazy goal tonight in the Islanders' Hurricanes game. Now, there are two guys in this series named Sebastian Ajo. One plays for Carolina and one plays for the Islanders. 
and the Sebastian Ajo and the Islanders just scored in his own net. Waxed the puck, and it completely fools Sorokin, but they are going to overtime, tied 3-3. So we are just over a week away from the start of the NFL draft, and the Seattle Seahawks will have two first-round picks. One of them is fifth overall. If, they, uh, if you look at most of the draft experts, and there's a real cottage industry of NFL draft experts, a lot of them think Seattle will use the fifth overall choice to grab a defensive lineman. Since they re-signed Geno Smith, it's not likely they would use that pick on a quarterback. But right now, the Seahawks' brain trust of head coach Pete Carroll and GM John Schneider say they really don't know what they'll do just yet. Not as close as I, I want to be. Um, <clears throat> hoping by, you know, hoping by next week, you know, we'll have by next... Maybe, maybe by the weekend we'll know, Wednesday. You know. Yeah. yeah, by next Wednesday, I hope to have way more. <clears throat> well, at least by the weekend, we'll, we'll have it figured out. Right? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> totally got this. <laughs> Being up there with a fifth pick, I think, is, is uh, it's just really exciting, and you're, you have way more uh, covers and accessibility to uh, all the prospects. That was some interesting camera framing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just... Uh... There's a lot of a lot important of stuff way above their head, apparently. Thought bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like that, like that. Yeah. Personally, I enjoy a little more. <laughs> That's almost too much. That's almost too for much. For you guys, yeah. Thanks, Squire. Okay. Just ahead, why it's up, up, and away for an iconic airport sculpture. Andrew is here now with a look ahead to Global News at 11. And Thanks, Sophie. Given the recent grass fires in our province, we talked to fire officials about the upcoming wildfire season and why they say the next two months are critical. And the city of Vancouver is proposing changes to the price of street parking meters in Chinatown. The pilot project would mean the price at a meter would be set at $2 an hour between 9 in the morning and 10 at night. The move comes after city staff say businesses express a desire for more consistent pricing in the area to generate more business. We'll have reaction and more details on when this parking option may be approved tonight at 11. Sophie, Chris. All right, thanks, Ann. Well, if you've spent any time waiting for a flight at Calgary International Airport, chances are you've seen that giant moving sculpture in the domestic terminal. It's an iconic example of kinetic art made to move like a massive wind-up toy. And as Global Sarah often reports tonight, it's looking for a new home. On a stroll through the Calgary airport, his metal artwork is around most every corner. These ones are a little bit less dimensional. They're sort of 17 pieces in all, but now one of the most iconic installations is being decommissioned. That was the seminal piece that really kind of got me going into the big, the big sculpture uh, world. Jeff DeBoer's first major commission piece, Up, Up and Away, took him over 5,000 hours to create. It was erected shortly after the terror of 9-11. The opposite of terror is joy. So being able to bring joy back into this environment, create a sculpture that's kinetic and as it turns, it's soothing and people can lose themselves in it, was really part of the design. And for over 20 years, that joy resonated with waiting travelers. Yeah, they've been there a really long time. I remember when they were there, we used to fly here as a kid and see grandparents, and now these girls play with them when we're here. They like to twist them up and see the planes go around. Keeps the kids entertained. Fun? Yeah, it's fun. fun eh? Yeah, fun, yeah. <laughs> it is disappointing that it's leaving because it's a piece of our city. 
The Calgary Airport Authority says that the artwork is being removed to facilitate renovations in the domestic terminal, somewhere that hosts about 70% of the traffic that comes through YYC. It definitely can get crowded in there. They have to change it. It's, it's a hard call for them. So I appreciate that, that they've offered to, to uh, give me the resources to be able to get it out in one piece and, and preserve it. So after two decades, DeBoer is getting his favorite art piece back, leaving him with a challenging question. What do you do with two giant wind-up tin toys? They're not going to fit in my back alley. Or... At 20 feet tall, the two tin toys need to find a home indoors, preferably in Calgary and preferably as a complete set. I think the engineer gave me a 120-year lifespan on the bearings, so I suspect the sculpture still has many years of, of uh, play to go. And while offers from art collectors pour in and DeBoer considers his options, Up, Up and Away will be grounded at YYC come June. Sarah Offen, Global News. Pretty cool, cool thing, yeah. Mm -hmm. Great artist. I know Will turned the wheel and made it fly. <laughs> and it'll be missed. Okay, last uh, word on weather before we go, Christy. Well, for tomorrow, we're expecting rainfall by the afternoon hours. So we're right back into a nice little bit of a break on Friday. Not totally dry, but at least it will be a drier. And then, yes, heading into a weekend, as Chris mentioned yesterday, third weekend in a row, tough for little baseball players out there. Hopefully you can find some gaps in there. <laughs> yes, hopefully. Thanks very much, Christy, and thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great night. Good night, all.